Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of ADC. A vein of form. Well, in footballing vernacular, and uh, I have to admit I'm an ardent student, a vein of form means a good run. For whatever reason, something gelled, continues to gel, and there are no reasons to see an end to the gelling. The reasons can be purely sporting, the mix of players, for example, the formation, the 3-5-2 versus the 4-2-3-1, or something a bit more intangible related to the aura a winning side builds. Respect, maybe a bit of timidity, maybe fear, induced by the seeming insuperability of the side. But what does this mean now and in the long term? The bottom line is that outcomes, the results, the scores, if you like, breed outcomes, an area under scrutiny in this issue. From causation to interpretation, our papers illustrate this more articulately than my ungainly analogy manages to. Prematurity, decodifying outcomes. So this issue is rich with detail and research and perspectives on the developmental trajectories of preterm babies, equally relevant for non-neonatologists as those whose day jobs are NICU-based. But isn't this old hat, I hear you protest, emphatically no, as the surface has only really been scratched, especially on the previously considered risk-free late preterm and early groups. Neora Alterman, colleagues' analysis of educational outcome by degree of prematurity in babies recruited in the UK Millennium Cohort Study, included 12,000-plus children assessed at 11 years by parental report. The overall prevalence of special educational needs of 11.2% and by gestational age subgroups was inversely associated with gestational age. 32 weeks, prevalence of 27.4% with adjusted relative risk of 2.9%. Those born at early term, 37 to 38 weeks, a much larger contributor numerically, of course, at a population level, were at a higher risk with an adjusted relative risk of 1.33, still significant. Think about this the next time you reassure the parents of a 38-week gestation baby that, inverted commas, there's no need for follow-up as we don't see problems at this age. The first bit might be true, the second bit needs a bit more thought. Neil Marlowe puts the population attributable risks in perspective, argues the case for health educational linkage and for looking beyond the, let's be honest, rather crude dichotomy of the special educational needs label. Lex Doyle and colleagues review outcome data in extremely preterm babies over time using data from various sources. The Victoria cohort studies from the 90s, the Victoria Cerebral Palsy Register and other comparable studies. In short, progress has been slow and erratic. Progress in cerebral palsy, but the academic performance gap has worsened. Without refinements to anti- and postnatal identification and intervention, this discussion will simply continue. It's well known that microcephaly, a head circumference of less than two standard deviations for gestational age of any degree is predictive of later developmental hearing and visual problems with a clear dose-response association. This came to a head in terms of attention and focus during the Zika-related epidemic microcephaly in the mid-2010s, focused on the most severely affected babies. But the population attributable risks of more subtle damage, both at an individual level and outside the Brazil and Caribbean epicentres. 
The findings from two national surveillance studies in this issue, estimating the degree of Zika-related congenital microcephaly from the Australian and Canadian paediatric surveillance programs by Carlos Nunes and Sean Morris groups respectively, goes some way to answering this. Data from 2016 to 18 in Australia, 2016 to 2019 in Canada, estimate similar incidences of microcephaly, 1.1 and 0.4 babies per 10,000 births, with extremely few being Zika-related. A high proportion of babies in both studies had associated dysmorphology and sadly but unsurprisingly fared badly. This got me thinking in a night's move sort of way about additional lessons. Well, despite the low incidence so far outside South and Central America, we can't completely count on the geographical and meteorological fastidiousness of the Aedes aegypti mosquito, to mention just one of many vectors. Anyway, remember how easily yellow fever and dengue sneaked into the US from Southeast Asia some decades ago, for those who don't remember, the Aedes sneaking across the oceans, nestling in pools of water in the base of untreated rubber tyres. Once this mode of transport had been decodified, laws about rubber transport changed substantially and the problem virtually vanished. Aedes is simply a metaphor of the way in which our fates and outcomes are all interconnected and that global health, and no one needs reminding as the pandemic continues to ebb, flow, confound and ice caps melt, isn't about low and middle income countries alone. I'll end with a piece on parental nutrition. So far from being the finished article, PN continues to evolve. In a Voices from History piece, Rachel Pybus and John Puntis outline its heritage from William Harvey's discovery of circulation in the 17th century to a period of awakening in the wake of, in 1949, work by the Medical Research Council showing that the components of proteins, so digested casein, amino acids and polypeptides, could be administered intravenously. The idea gained traction and popularity during the 1970s with breakthrough ideas in the means of adding the other components, lipids, and to this day is finding new uses in areas unimaginable in the heady post-war era. So there's obviously a lot more in this issue. These are just pieces that caught my eye particularly. Be sure to check everything else out. Keep listening, keep reading, and keep corresponding. Thanks for this time. See you next time. Bye for now.